Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, Real quickly, if you are here today and you're like, man, there's this like holiday where people eat like a seen amount of food and they enjoy themselves. And you're like, but I don't have someone to enjoy this with. One of the things that we really value here at the church is that we do community together. And so if you're like, I have a house and I would love to have a bunch of people with me or I'm doing this and we can have a few more, please email laura at revolution22.org. If you're like, man, I don't have a place or my, I'm not going home or I'm in college or my family's in a different spot or we would just, to, as a family, like to join another family, please email laura at revolution22.org. We'll try and get you guys connected so that you can enjoy some fellowship over a holiday and eat some food and enjoy each other's company. Um, as we finish up our study in Joseph, the book of Genesis, I thought there's nothing better than for us to do is to spend the next six months recapping all that we talked about in case anything was lost in it. So we're going to start. No, I'm not, not going to do that. It's okay. You guys don't get my joke. That's not funny. It's cool. Um, no, we're finishing the book of Genesis today, which is also the finishing the, the, the life of the genealogies of Jacob, which has been predominantly focused on the, the life of Joseph and how God is working out his plan of redemption through this family at this point in history for his, uh, his glory. And as we've been working through this, any good story, any kind of good ending of a story would always kind of have that, 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 that summary statement or something in there that would kind of go, this is what has been said all along, or this is what we're kind of trying to show all along. And Joseph and, and Genesis is no exception to that. It has a brilliant closing, a brilliant kind of summary statement that you could ultimately just have said, this is kind of what we've seen played out through all of the chapters in Joseph and, and the, the genealogy of Jacob through chapter 37 through 50 that we've been in. So as we finish up, just a quick, like where we are, we, we talked about the, the blessings and the, the prophetic blessings that, that Israel or Jacob had, had spoken over his sons the, and what was going to happen kind of in the future. And he's done all that because he's really close to dying. And then in this section, chapter 50, verse 4, we see that that Jacob dies, that he breathes his last, and, and the, the people mourn for him. In fact, Egypt mourned for him up to 70 days, which is crazy because they only mourn 72 days for a pharaoh. So you can see the esteem that they have for Jacob, Israel, in the land of Egypt and how it's gone. He's been there 17-ish years with Joseph and his family, and they've been kind of just living their life in Goshen just outside of, the, of Egypt and, and the land and taking care of cattle and and. and all the, the, the things that need to happen to live life kind of in blessing. The, the famine has passed and life is kind of settling back into normal as the land kind of replenishes itself. And Joseph's still in his role and that's what's happening. Well, Joseph goes to his, the household of Pharaoh. He doesn't go to Pharaoh himself. Again, scholars have all kinds of reasons for that. We're not going to focus on that. But he goes to the household and says, hey, I, I swore to my dad that I would bury him with his family, with Abraham, the, with Abraham, Isaac. I told him I, I would take him back to the promised land and bury him. Can you please, like, let Pharaoh know, like, I want to do this. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, of course you should do this. And the elders of Egypt go, and there's chariots, and it's this huge ende- endeavor. Like, there look like, looks like a royal family is headed their way out of Egypt into the promised land in Canaan to bury Jacob. And so all of them go except for the children and some of the herds. And, 
and they go and spend their time in Egypt, and they bury dad, and it's a beautiful thing, and the people of Canaan see it, like, wow, this is a person of prominence, and they they give it a special name, and, and all these things happen. It's a really, really powerful thing. And then, now just picture for a moment, these are the people that just had heard from the man whom they're burying that there's land in this area that is going to be theirs. It's going to be in their tribe. It's going to be in their name. This is where they're going to go. And they have to turn around and head back to exile in Egypt and go and spend some time there. That, that probably did something to each of them. Like, well, this is the promised land that we were told. This is where we'll, well, okay, we'll go to Egypt and we'll go spend some time in Egypt. And they spend uh, most of them the rest of their lives in Egypt. And, uh, and so then they, on their way back, they are, uh, they're, they're, Headed back, they get in place, and then in verse, uh, in chapter 50, in verse uh, five, 15, it says this, when, when Joseph's brothers, uh, th- they saw that their father was dead. Now, this is better when the full reality of their father was dead had set in. Like, it wasn't like they went to the funeral and then were like, wait a minute, dad died? Like, that's not, that's not how that's supposed to be read for us. It's that they, when they felt the full reality of dad's passing, mourning has gone like, they're, they're, they're back into life. It's like, oh, dad's gone. The first thing these brothers do um, is they say, um, they say, uh, sorry, it, will, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So, so the very first thing that these brothers think of is the fact that they had sold their brother into slavery some 30 plus years ago. That's the very first thing that hits them. And we're not going to spend all our time on this, but I want to I lean into this for one second here because it's really, really interesting. Um, these brothers have felt guilt for 30 years about what they did to their brother. They have felt the, the, the pain and the sorrow of doing that. Even though all of the blessing, even though Joseph's like already told him in chapter 45, hey, hey, it's okay what you did. God used it for good to save lives. We're, we're good to go. There, there is no conversation about anywhere in the narrative. The brother is saying, hey, please forgive us for what we did. And, and Joseph saying, I forgive you. We don't, we don't ever see that happen. And so these, these brothers, they, they believe, they think that, that because, of, because of the dad being dead, that that was the only reason why Joseph was giving them anything or caring for them. It's interesting uh, even with the presence of all the blessings in their life that God's given them, they, they knew this, like all the good in their life. Th- these are the people of God. They know that good in their life, fruitfulness and, and having all these things is indicative of God blessing us. And so they've experienced that. They've tasted that. They've held that. They've seen it through a famine, all of those things. And yet they're still struggling with this one scenario in their life. Granted, it's a big one. And what I wanted to talk about real quickly is, um, is the idea of, of, a, of a guilty conscience. See, I think that the reason why the brothers are still carrying this is because they haven't had the opportunity to, or they haven't taken the opportunity to confess and repent what they did to Joseph, to have that conversation. They've received the blessing. And, and by what we can see in the scripture, it seems like Joseph has at least forgiven them from God. But again, there's no communication to this. Us sitting this side of history, we have all kinds of ways with which we're supposed to operate with forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation, restoration in the New Testament. We see it all over. But here, we, 
we don't, we don't see them doing that. We just see them living their life with Joseph in the 17 years. And so what I wanted to push on us is I think that, um, is I think that the same is true of us. When we carry a, a, an unrepentant sin, when we, when we aren't willing to say what I have done is wrong and please forgive me of this, it, it's going to inevitably put up a wall between you and the person that you've done this with. And let me explain this. I think that... Um, we know in Scripture, we know that ultimately, like, like confession, repentance is a, is a command of us that follow Jesus to do. Reconciliation and restoration, what God commands of us to do, but that's a work more of God in the heart of the individuals in that situation. These brothers haven't done that. They haven't said anything. And, and Joseph's response to them and their request is that he cries. And so, so here are the brothers, 30 years existing, in life with Joseph, I mean, they go to their Thanksgiving meal, which they didn't have that back then in case you guys didn't know history-wise. They go to their meals. They experience their Sabbath. They're doing their work with Joseph. All the while, this is deep enough in them, unsettled enough in them, that this has got to be affecting their relationship. I don't, I don't know how it couldn't be affecting it. In some way, there was, it was like, oh, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. No, we can't. Getting closer, getting closer. No, we can't. Because it's really hard to enter in to life and intimacy with someone if they're, A, not willing to say what they did is wrong, if they're just blaming it away or just minimizing it or excusing it, that's, it, it, it makes it really difficult to move forward. I think the same is true of us. When, when, when I choose to excuse or shift or blame why I'm doing something on someone else, all I'm doing is keeping a barrier between me and them in relationship. When I'm willing to recognize my part and say what I did was wrong and own that and repent of it and turn from it and give myself to walking by the power of the Spirit out in that repentance, that's where the reconciliation and restoration can really happen in my heart if I've done that. These these brothers didn't do it. I wonder wonder what's lost in, in, in my life and the life of those in the room here when we sit stubbornly on unrepentant sins. Again, if you've spent any life (laughs) breathing air here, you've experienced a broken relationship because of unrepentance, either yours or someone else's. But I I wonder what's what's missed on on finding ourselves in the story of God when we refuse to to acknowledge the things that we have done as wrong and and give someone an opportunity to express and and, and give us the grace and, and forgiveness that can only come from the acknowledgement in this way. I wonder what we miss. See, instead of truly repenting or turning from our sins, we minimize them or we blame others or we ignore our own sinful actions. And here, 30 years later, dad's dead. And the first thing these brothers think about is, uh-oh, we're in trouble. That, that's indicative of the fact that that has not been a memory that just disappeared. That's probably something that they had thought of on a regular basis. And there is no way for that to be present in those brothers and them to have this really deep, intimate connection together without something happening with this said scenario. And I think the same is true of us. See, many of us, we, we carry around these sins. We, we believe the lie and we say things like, oh, well, it's not really hurting anyone. They don't know. It was, it was so far in the, in the past, it doesn't really affect anything. We, come on, that's not true. We know that's true. We know that, that when, we, when we hold on to these things, it not only wreaks havoc with our own heart, it, it, it affects the connection in our relationships, in our marriages, in our community. It, it causes us to, to question the things. If, 
everything that the brothers experienced from Joseph, they, it, it caused them to just believe that they, he was only doing it because of dad. That he wasn't being kind or, or seeing himself in the story of God and doing what was asked or expected of him in this way. He was only doing it because he was just trying to please dad. And now that dad's gone, vengeance will be had. Joseph will bring justice. So these brothers feel the weight of an excused away, minimized, ignored. Maybe just, oh, you know what? So much time has passed. What's, why, why bring it up now? It's just going to cause hurt. As if holding on to it unrepentantly is not causing hurt. Church, we, we can't make the same mistake. That, that, that's going to cause us and the people we care deeply about hurt. And he, these brothers feel it. So these brothers in fear, in a moment of sadness, is turned to fear of the reality or the gravity of the situation that they have themselves in, which is that they have done something illfully wrong to their brother who has all power to do whatever he wants to, justifiably even so, and would be supported by all the people around him to do what he wants to do in this situation. It causes them to run to fear. And this is what unrepentant sin does in us, guys. It it skews the lens of everything we see. It causes us to see everything that's done, even if someone does something in kindness, as, well, they don't really mean it because they couldn't, because, because, because. This is why we are not supposed to blame or minimize or justify that which we do that is sinful and evil. And again, maybe, maybe the secret trick is 31 years or 32 years, and they would have been fine. Maybe that was enough time passed, but at least 30 years still didn't settle this in their hearts. All it took was dad to die, even though they spent 17 years of joy and bliss under the support of their brother, caring for them. Even though he'd already said, look, look, I know, I know, I know what you did, but it's cool. God did that to send me ahead so that I could save you. So these brothers um, really, really struggle. So they pull out, they, pull, they literally hold back for no stops. They come to him and they say, okay. So they sent a message to Joseph. Now, this is the, what's happening. Basically, what they're doing is what, they, what we read next is what they sent to him. This seems like a, a, wow, they're really lazy. Why won't they come and have the conversation? This is kind of a normal way to potentially do something when you're not sure how it's going to happen. And so essentially picture it this way. Like they give a letter to someone and say, hey, go give this to him. I wonder if they gave it to Benjamin. Just out of curiosity, we don't know. But they say, hey, go give this to your brother. Go give this to Joseph. And then he's going to read it. And then literally when he's done reading it, it's like they walk into the room afterwards. Like, here we are. Like, did you see our letter? It's the same thing that we saw that Jacob do with Esau when he was worried about him coming, sending things ahead of him. Like, hey, I want to let you know I'm coming in peace. Like, it's not like they could just shoot him a quick text. Hey, just so you know. Like, they had to, like, physically get present with each other. And so he, they send a message, and they're like, your father gave this command before he died. Now, I don't want to be too mean to the brothers here, but most scholars don't believe that this was something that Jacob did with them. Most scholars don't believe that at all. In fact, the only indication that we get that Jacob might be inclined to think something ill of his brother, of, of Joseph's brothers, is when, when he's trying to take Benjamin back, he's like, fine, go, you've rid me of this son, and maybe this, will be son, this one will be done too. But there's never any conversation. The narrative is silent on whether or not the brother's like, hey, dad, about Joseph, I know he's alive now, can we tell you what happened? Like, there's, there's nothing. The narrative is just silent on this. And so they say that, that, that Israel, or before he died, made this command to the brothers. Now, the reason why most scholars don't think that that's the case, they believe that if it was a command, that Israel would have spoken that to Joseph in that way. Hey, you, you're, you need to forgive your brothers. 
And then he would have had a conversation with the brothers like, hey, you, you need to repent of this. You need to confess you're wrong and let him go through the motion. So again, it's possible that he did it, but most don't believe he does. So basically what these brothers are doing, they're sending a letter, maybe with Benjamin, who knows, to Joseph, and they're, they're calling on the power of mournful, sad dad. Dad's gone. Like maybe this will help Joseph's heart in being soft to us and not being vengeful to us. So they say, okay, so, so yeah, dad gave us this command before he died. And this is what he said, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now it's really important. Transgression, sin, and evil. They are literally holding back nothing. There's not a, hey, so, I mean, we were young and dumb. It's like, no, what I did was wrong. It was sinful. It was evil. My intent was evil. My actions were sinful. There's, there's no minimizing in this statement here. They're not like, well, you know, it's been a lot of time, and, you know, it, was, it was, wasn't the best decision at the time. Like, no, it's a full out, like, hey, in all three ways, transgression, sin, and evil, we did this. This is what we did. Forgive us for this. And, he's, and then he goes on, and then they're like, and now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Okay, so if dad's name isn't enough to invoke generosity from you and, and lack of vengeance, then let's go ahead and invoke God's name. Hey, hey, you wouldn't, you wouldn't exact vengeance on, I mean, on brothers that are brothers not just in blood, but in God. It's literally what, again, I don't think they're doing it right. I think they're being genuine here, but they're trying to use every stop. Dad's saying this, God's doing this. Like, we don't want to do this. This is a really good lesson for us in the church, and we see this in Jesus' words in the New Testament. Like, basically what he's saying is, look, we, we sh- there's a really clear way with which we are to operate with God's children. There is a, there is a charity and a, and a, and a generosity and a, and, a, and a gentleness and a, and, a, and a unity that we are to operate with those who bear the name of child of God. For us in the church today, that's, that's all who, who follow Jesus. We, we, are, we are commanded to be forgiving to each other, to be charitable to each other, to be gracious to one another. And he's saying, look, please forgive us of that. And then the last, please, as the brothers come in, they fall down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. We are your slaves. Hey, forgive us because dad said so, <laughs> because, hey, we're, we're, all, we're all a part of the, the same community of God, and, and ultimately, we won't ever consider ourselves evil, equal to you. We will be on our face before you as your slaves, which is the full <laughs> circle to the dream that Je- Joseph had in Genesis 37. The, mon- the moon and the sun are, are, have passed on. The stars now are, are bowing before, before Joseph. The very evil that they did to intend to stop that dream from coming to fruition, they're now embodying it in humility before them. They pulled out all stops. Think about how difficult it must have been for the brothers to ever believe that they were of any value to God, carrying around the weight of something so evil and sinful. So I think Repentance is necessary for us to truly experience and live in the grace of God. I'm not going to repent of, of what I've done, that I'm making small all that God has done for me. And it's like he's doing me a favor as opposed to saving my life. Joseph's response is tears. 
He cries. I skipped over that section of the scripture there. He, Jesus, uh, Joseph cries. There's a really fun, nerdy, chiastic structure of seven different times Joseph cries in Genesis that I give you full permission to go have fun and nerd out on. I'm not going to go there. But I think it's interesting is, is that why does Joseph cry here? Why, why here? Now, we see him cry at the moment when he's seeing his brothers, and it makes sense because he hasn't been with them for a long time. His sadness. Why is he crying here? Again, the scholars and theologians are all over the board as to why they cry, why he cries here. Is he crying because he's deeply offended by the fact that they would assume that he's capable of the vengeance that they believe he's going to do and that the things that he was doing was only because his dad told him to do it? Maybe he's crying for that, being so misunderstood. Maybe he's crying because... He's, um, he's so exhausted trying to prove to them that he cares for them and forgives them. Maybe what, what there's, there's many different ways. I'm going to hone in on one because I think, I think it's really important for us to see at least in our, conf, in, in our confidence and walking forward today. I think one of the reasons that he could be crying is because he so desperately needed to hear his brothers acknowledge what they did so that that wall between them could finally fall down and he could experience intimacy with them. See, I think, I think he's crying because he didn't realize how badly he needed to hear them say those things. Not a, hey, about that, you know that thing that happened in the desert? Like, no, like a, hey, we did evil. We transgressed, we sinned, and it is atrociously horrible, and I'm sickened. I'm disgusted with myself that I did it. Hearing that, it's like in one fly swing, the sledgehammer smashed the rock of causing intimacy be, be torn between them two. And now there was an opportunity for them to embrace each other in a way where the brothers weren't carrying the weight of what they had done. Where every embrace was like, ah, I don't think if he, if he really, I can't believe he really forgives me. Where, where now Joseph had the actual opportunity to display the grace of God to them because they finally acknowledged all that they were in that moment. That, again, it could be a many other things, but I think that could be one of them too. And Joseph cries, and he hugs them. If they were carrying this guilt for 17 years, they couldn't trust that he wouldn't impose vengeance on them. This is true of you and I today too, church. If you are carrying something that you know has been wrong, God has shown you it's wrong, you know it's wrong, and you don't repent of it, confess it to the Lord or to the person you've done, I promise you, it is affecting you in an adverse way because we weren't meant to carry these things. It's, it's literally Christians carrying a bag, those that profess to follow Christ, carrying a bag of things that we believe we're supposed to carry, and Jesus is like, that bag is empty. I paid for it on the cross. What are you doing? Stop looking at yourself through the lens of the bag with which you're carrying it and look at yourself through the cross with which I have gone to for you and see yourself as I see you, as holy and blameless and redeemed and righteous, not by anything you're going to do or have done based on everything that I have done. When we choose to not repent, to to not call what we did exactly what it is, when convicted by the Holy Spirit, we say that that grace is just not good enough for us. We say that it's not, worth, it's not worth the pain of going through what that may cause in my relationships or the things that I value or want so badly. This whole time in the book of Genesis, my hope has been 
um, that we would see ourselves in the story of God. That we would see, like, regardless of our circumstances, and I've said this a million times, hopefully you have it memorized. If you don't, I'm disappointed, and there will be a test afterwards. No. Regardless of our circumstances, guys, like, whatever's in front of me, and I, and I get this, hear me on this, please. I wrestle with this so much. It's so hard to hold on to and to sit in. I, I, I confess that fully to you. But regardless of what's happening, when we, when we find ourselves in the story of God and not make this story about us, guys, we will thrive. And Joseph here, he's, he has found himself in the story of God. And so when his brothers come and ask for forgiveness, probably something that he had already gone to the Lord and forgiven them for. All it does is allow him then to do, which I love at the end of this, all the rest of Genesis is talking about Joseph and his death and 110 years and all these things. It allows him then to put his life in the hands of his brothers and say, hey, when I die, will you please take care of my bones and take me back to the land? I wonder if that couldn't have happened. Like, would he have trusted that they would have followed through with it if they weren't willing to acknowledge all that they've done? You know what's interesting? Joseph's response is so powerful. It's so powerful. And this is literally the summary statement of all of of Joseph's story, the genealogy of Jacob that that focuses in on Joseph for so long. The summary statement. He he goes in at verse 19. He says this. He says, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, guys. For am I in the place of God? Now, Now, look at that. This is such a powerful statement. The very beginning of Genesis with the fall and everything happens, we have the issue of Adam and Eve trying to break the dividing wall between human and God, trying to become God. I can be God in doing this situation. Like they sin and try to make a decision. I can be like God. And at the very end of Genesis, we have Joseph saying, "Uh -uh, I'm not even a substitute for God. I am not in the place of God. The story is moving itself along in redemptive purposes. We see, we see here Joseph saying, look, look, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. I'm, I'm not God. I'm not God. I'm not the one that is going to, to judge the acts of those that do it. I'm just one of his servants. I'm not even a substitute for him. Don't even put me in that position. I won't take that seat because it's not mine to take. Joseph calls out exactly what they did. Look what he does. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's okay, guys. I know, I know, it's fine. No, 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 no. <laughs> it wasn't that big a deal. It's okay. He doesn't minimize it. No, no, no. For, for this repentance, for this freedom to come relationally for them, he goes right where he was. He's like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. As for you, you meant evil against me. You did this disgustingly. You sinned against me. You hurt me. I felt it when I was in the pit screaming for my life and you ignored it and ate a sandwich. I felt it while I was enslaved to the Midianites and and watching my whole life be torn away from me as I'm sent off into slavery. I felt it when I was in the pit. What you meant for evil, you didn't just do it because you thought it'd be funny. You did it because you meant it for evil. You see what he's doing here? He's not, he's not, he's not minimizing what they're doing. He's meeting them right where they're at because it's so much easier to come up together when you can do that. How powerful is that? What you meant for evil. No, no, no. Okay, yeah, you're evil. You did it. Now stand up. God meant for good. What you did for evil. Yeah, what you did was wrong. It was sinful and oh man, it hurt. And I'm sure there are many times that the narrative is silent, but I'm sure there are many times in his mind at some point in the pit that he started envisioning all the ways he was going to get even if he ever had a moment. But no, no, no. What What you meant for evil, God meant it for good to bring it about to save people's lives. 
Look at what, look at what Joseph does. He, he, he meets him right where it's at. This is why it's so good for us to not minimize or, or limit it. It makes the grace that much more powerful and beautiful. Joseph, in one sentence, summarizes it all up. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we could have just done this sentence and not spent six months in this book. I'm sorry, guys. Joseph also is, has a similar mindset of Apostle Paul, inspired by God, quoting God from Deuteronomy in Romans twelve nineteen. says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, Joseph knows. I'm in the story of God. Like, like everything that you did has been used for the story of God, and I know what my purpose is in it. What he chooses to do with you, he will do as a good God, as a just God, as a God who is in control. So I'm not God. You don't need to worry about me. And then he puts his hands in his life in the hands of his brother. Ask for their care. Hey, when I die, will you take care of these things for me? This, what is Joseph hitting at? I want to real quickly. We've talked about this before, but but he's 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 hitting at some some key themes that just are always present and and really present all over Scripture, but things that we we can tend to forget things that I tend to forget on the regular. He's reminding them of, of who, who God is. He's saying, look, God is sovereign. And that, what that, like, in short, what that means, God is all powerful. He's all authority, right? That he's, he's in control, that nothing or anyone can or ever will thwart or stop him from doing what he wants to do in his timing for his glory, that God is sovereign. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, and God's sovereignty will always win. He's saying God is good. He's saying, look, 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 brothers, God is good. And this is, this is something that, that of all the people we should ever listen to, Joseph is one we should really tune our ear into. How can this man say that God is good through those 13 years at minimum? But yeah, he says, God is good. Look what God has done. He's, he's turned it for good. He's turned it for good. God is good. Those of us this side of history have such a powerful reason to never, ever doubt God's goodness. If we sit here today, anyone who rests in the grace of a life surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can say without a doubt that God's goodness is not on the table anymore. We know for sure that he is good because we are not. We know that. That can't be questioned. We know we aren't good. I know I'm not good. But questioning God's goodness for what he has done for me through Jesus Christ is, 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 a, is a pointless thing for me to question in my circumstances because he doesn't need to prove it any more than that. It came at great cost to himself to show us that. We know that God's rule will, will never be thwarted, never be stopped. And this is an important for, one, for us to remember. It's been an important one for me to remember these last uh, few weeks. Is that although we can't understand the timing or the means, we can without a doubt look back over history and see that no amount of evil or whatever it may look like will ever stop God from accomplishing his redemption within his means, his plans, and his timing. Church, we, we, don't, we don't have to doubt that because the scriptures are clear. We see it very clearly in the work of God through everything that's happening here. Like this, this, this account of Joseph's life, when we get to Judah and Tamar, you're like, there's no way that this could be good. And yet we see God continuing to work out his redemptive 
plans in spite of an all-out attack from the enemy, from our sinfulness, from our flesh, and from this broken world. God will not be thwarted. Jesus has delivered the death blow to sin and death, and so we, sitting on this side of it, know that we are free to know that God's plan will come to fruition in his timing perfectly. We also know that God has shown us without question in Jesus that he desires a deep, loving, personal relationship with us. He left the comfort of the throne room, put, humbled himself to put on flesh to the point of death on the cross to walk the life that you and I never could live to pay for the sins that every single one of us deserve to pay for so that he could be in a personal relationship with you and I. Not just a people, personal, you and me. We also know that God is always at work, which means he is accomplishing his redemptive purposes in me and in his people and ultimately all things the good and for his ultimate glory. That means that it's happening. No suffering is wasted because God is always sovereign, regardless of what it may seem to look like to us. I know, I know, I know many of us are going through many pains. I get it. Many of us are experiencing darkness, or if we aren't, we will, or some of you are in the darkest days right now. And even if that feels like a season that's been going and extended for years on end, we know, we know without a doubt that God is at work because of what his word has shown us, because of who he is in Jesus, and because of what he has shown us through Jesus. We, we have that. And Joseph can say that very clearly, that God's at work. Yeah, it was, seemed like a real big roundabout way, but, but he worked sanctifying my own heart in a way that I didn't know needed so that I could play a role that I had no idea I was going to play, not in my story, but in his story, for his purposes and his glory. He's at work. And even when we doubt it, which we will, and that's okay. Even when we doubt it, we, we, we still know God is good because Jesus has already proved that. We know that he's accomplished things. And then I'm sure, I'm sure in your moments of weakness, there's gonna be moments where you're gonna go, I just, I'm struggling. If you're anything like me, I'm struggling to hold on to this. Like it feels like a very thin thread, a very, a very, very elusive cloud that I keep trying to put myself in the presence of. You find yourself in that moment, one of the most Peace-giving verses to me in my life always has been this verse. And, and let me get to it here. It's Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, this is why this gives me peace. That means that I'm not going to understand what he's doing sometimes. And that's okay. That means even when I'm potentially risking doubting him or struggling to understand how he's accomplishing his purposes because I know God is good and I know God is sovereign. He's doing those things. But most likely that means at some point in my life or very regularly, at least for me, maybe not as much for you guys, I'm just not sure what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing because if I were running it, which would be a very bad thing, I would do it differently. And God has given me peace to know like, hey, look, my ways aren't your ways. Of course his ways aren't our ways. Not many of us would concoct a, a, a way to bring a bunch of really broken, sinful people into relationship at the expense of a perfect person. Most of us would be like, no, let's, let's, let's save the people that deserve it. Let's, let's figure out a metric system here where we can kind of do it 
this way. That's, that's where ours is. Of course his ways aren't our ways. And he goes on and says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are more ways higher than yours. So not only are they different, but they're higher. They're better. This, that was so freeing for me. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I don't know why I ever thought differently, but God, your ways are better than me, than mine. Okay, I can handle that. And my thoughts are, are not your thoughts. Uh, they're not. My, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts as well. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that God is bringing, he's weaving his story through the history with a broken people to save a broken people. And he's using us for his glory to do this. What does that mean? It means that when it's all good, he's at work. When everything's really rotten around you, he's at work. It means when it seems boring or quiet, he's at work. He is at work. He is doing the work in me, in you. He is doing the work through us. He is accomplishing his purposes at all times and in all situations. He is faithful. God is writing his story today, church. He has graciously invited us to be a part of his story for his glory, for his kingdom purposes. And he's at work. We must find ourselves in his story. You know, a lot of the times when you read the scripture, you're, you're, you see these kind of these shadows of characters that are to point to something greater. And Joseph is a really good shadow of, of Jesus, at least in this say, statement for sure. It says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, I mean, what, what the world meant for evil in, in crucifying Jesus, God meant for good. Ultimate good. Redemptive good. No plans could be stopped. Where are you wrestling with God in this? I, I, let me, let me, actually, let me say that differently. I'm sure you're wrestling with God in this, and that's okay. It's okay to wrestle with God. We all do it. I do it. We all do it. Every one of us are going to wrestle with God. But, but how are you wrestling? Is it, is it, is it, is it a specific way? Are you, are you struggling with God? Are you struggling to trust God because of the evil that's being done to you? Or because you can't imagine how God is going to fix all the broken things around you. Or, or, or you're like, but God, the, what this enemy meant for evil, or what, what the sinful man meant for evil, shoot, this broken world meant for evil, or I don't even know if they meant it for evil, but man, it feels like evil. Are you, are you feeling that? If you are, take heart, because God has meant it for good. Why? Because he's at work, because he's all-powerful, because he's still in control, and he will always be in control. And because he is and has been and always will be good. Everything he does is good. If we believe in a God who is all-powerful and in complete control, and ultimately that he is authority of all things, then we know that whatever is meant for evil, God can mean for good, can use for good in his glory. That means that we don't, we don't have to stress out about that, and, and that means that I don't have to stress out about that. It means I can trust him regardless of what it may look like or how I feel, that whatever evil you're experiencing right now, he, he's at work, church. He's at work. And even if that evil is, man, friend, you don't get it. The most evil I see is my own heart. Well, well take heart, take courage. <laughs> he's at work there too. He will complete the work that he began in you if you are his. If you're here today and you're like, man, I, I don't, I don't believe this. I'm not following Jesus. Then yeah, I guess I'm one of those evil ones. Well, great. He, he, he died for 
for the evilness. <laughs> he died for the evil people to bring them into him and, and deem them righteous. You are, you are loved by God. Surrender your life to him. Give your life to him. And if you're here today and you're like, yeah, I've done that, but I keep wrestling with it. Take heart, church. We all do. God being, being, so, God being sovereign also means that he knows what you need when you need it. He knows you when you are down, and he knows what he is doing. So I would encourage you to run to him in prayer. I'm always amazed at how um, equally tied together my wrestling with God's sovereignty is tied to my lack of going to him in prayer. I feel very often that the less I spend time in conversation with him, the more and more I find myself doubting his goodness and his sovereignty and his power. Jesus even says in Matthew 7, when he's talking about like, ask, seek, knock, he says, look, look, you dads, you won't give your kid a stone for bread, but, but in comparison from the lesser to the greater, you're considered evil compared to the father that you have in God. So ask, ask him. And I get it, many of you are like, but I, I've been asking. Like, free me from this, Lord. Heal me from this. Fix this. I'm, I'm, I'm pleading for you, God. He sees you. He knows you where you are. And he is not distant. He's at work. And you too will be able to look back and say, I see, I see the evil in my own life, God, and how you used it for good. In your perfect timing and for your glory, as I have been wrestling with this over and over again in my own life, I continually be reminded of this one verse, thinking about the sovereignty of God and how powerful he is. And so I just wanted to read it with you guys today. And if it's just one of those verses I just needed to read for myself, then this is free for you. You guys can check out. But either way, um, this is such a powerful scripture that I, um, I can't read without emotion, not because I'm trying to make it happen. It just, it just hits me there almost always when I go there. And especially when I'm grabbing on saying, God, okay, I want to see you in this. I want to understand it. Okay. So forgive me for that. It's Romans 8, 31 to 39. It says, what then shall we say to these things? What should we say of all the things that I've been talking about? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we, he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, hear me on this. Those all things, those things you're asking for, those things that you and I keep asking for, those may not be the things he gives us because those are the things we need. We just don't know it yet. He'll give us all things in him. Who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Therefore, who is to condemn? Who, who's condemned? If God is the judge, anyone else's condemnation means nothing. Nothing at all. There's, there's no weight or value it has in my life because God, the all-powerful, all-wonderful, all-sovereign, amazing, majestic God himself is the only one that gets to judge. And therefore, any condemnation from anyone else means nothing. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now hear this. That means that Jesus right now is interceding for you. He's interceding for you, Colleen. He's interceding for you, Ryan. He's interceding for you, Kelsey. He's, he's not just going up there and saying, I'm going to intercede for the church. He's up there personally having a conversation with God about you and me right now. And it makes no sense how, <laughs> but he's God and his ways are higher than ours. So we just won't understand. That means that your situation, your plea right now, Jesus isn't just going, oh yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. Put it in the waiting line. And then when it's time for me to get to it, I'll get to it. No, he's, he's right now saying, God, help, 
God be with him. The same way, when we sin, when we, when we sin, we bring our sinfulness into the throne room of God, and Jesus is going, no, 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 as your advocate, I paid for that. My blood paid for that. All you see in him, all we see in him now, and Bren, is, is the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not by anything I've done or will do, but because of everything that God has done for me through Jesus Christ. So take heart, he's, he's interceding for you right now. He doesn't just hear your prayers, he's, he's literally speaking about you. He's talking to you personally. So if he's interceding, well then, man, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ then? It's hard to not feel pretty loved to know that the, the king of the universe is there interceding for me personally. So who can separate us from this love from Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for the sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, no in all of this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through Jesus Christ who has loved us perfectly. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation, just in case you guys are wondering, that's an exhaustive list. There's nothing else that's not on that list. There's nothing in here that like, oh, but he didn't say about my unrepentance. No, 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 no. If you are Christ, nothing will separate you from his love. If you are in him, if you have surrendered your life to him as Lord and Savior, if you've given yourself to him in spite of your pathetic, my pathetic at times of following him, nothing separates me from his love and there's nothing I can do that will cause him to love me any more or any less. There's nothing on that list. No, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not based on what I do. It's based on Jesus. I don't have to white knuckle hold on and say, are you there, God? Because he's already there. (laughs) He's never let go. He won't let go. And nothing can take us out of his grasp. So take heart. Where you find yourself, the difficulties you're wrestling with, take heart. We're going to take communion in just a second. I'm going to give you guys time after this song to get it if you need it. So don't feel like you have to rush to that. But we have a song that we're going to sing today. Actually, a friend of mine was encouraging me with it this week, and it's a song that um, Ben and the team put together and planned on doing anyways. And really, I probably could have just not preached at all, and we could have sung the song, and the same point would have come through. So sorry about that. You got the extra 40 minutes of conversation. Um, this song, I want to I want to do two things with the song, though, because see, I think wherever you find yourself, I think if you're if you're anything like me, you can wake up feeling here and, and, and being like, yeah, I believe this. And then it's like noon. And you're like, ah, do I still believe this? Like, is this? Is this still real? And so wherever you find yourself today, I want to I encourage you. I want to plead with you to do something that might feel a little uncomfortable at first, or you might worry about who may or may not see it. Don't, don't worry about who may or may not see it. This song, I want to do two things. This song basically sings what we taught today perfectly. And so what I want to do is I want to do one of two things. If you're here today and you're like, man, I, I believe this is true and I know who I am in Christ and yeah, I, I'm not perfect and I wrestle with this, then I want you to stand up and I want you to sing boldly and loudly, not worrying about your pitch or on tune or any of those things. Don't, don't worry about any of those things. I just need you to speak especially loudly because here's why. Here's why. Because I'm going, to ask you to, I'm going to ask you to bear a burden for your brothers and sisters that don't believe that today. And if you're here today and you're like, man, 
I can't. I can't get there. I'm struggling to hold on to it. I don't know if I believe it. Then just sit and open your arms and let God speak this over you from your brothers and sisters. Let God share this to you. Let him, let him boldly proclaim the truth about what we were both about to sing over you. And if you're here and you're like, I can't, even, I can't even sit or sing. I just need to be prayed for. Then head to the prayer room. It's always there. It's always available. We always have people that are saved to pray with. Or maybe just pray in your seat. Like, I need help. Let's, let's, let's be the body of Christ together and let's, let's do this. And so either you declare this or you let, let it be declared over you. Either you proclaim the goodness of who he is and all that he's done and not worry about is it, is it at the right beat or the right tune or am I sounding good enough or what if someone else is here? No, 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 no. As one who has been saved by God, as one who has been deemed holy based on nothing you've done with everything that is in you, if you believe that is true, then just declare it as loud as you possibly can and who cares what it sounds like because that is a joyful noise to the Lord, praising him for all that he is. And if you can't get there, no worries. It's okay, church. It's okay. It's okay to not be there today. That doesn't make you a less than Christian or a, or a pathetic follower of Jesus. That just means right now you need your brothers and sisters to, to declare it over you. That's perfectly fine. So take your time. Do whatever you need to do. We will have silence and, and chaos getting communion afterwards. I'm okay with that. But I don't want us to rush past this moment. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you know where each of us are. You know... Um, how desperate each of us feels. You know just how badly we need, um, we need you and, and everything. And yet, God, there are some that are here today that are just encouraged, they're charged, they're excited. God, we, we need to see um, the power of your testimony living out in others' lives, declaring the goodness. And so, God, as we sing about your sovereignty, may we not be worried about how good we sound, um, may we not be worried if someone sees us sitting and not singing. God, may we just, maybe in this moment, picture ourselves in the throne room of God, standing next to Jesus as he is interceding for us personally. And just let ourselves feel that, Lord. And whatever that causes us to do, may it not be a performance or, a, or a, an emotion of a thing that, that is not meant to be there. May it just be an overpouring of our heart where we are, God, to who you are and what you're doing with us. It's in your powerful, glorious, mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.